This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Thank you for joining us in the second part on informal settlements in Kenya and South Africa with Marie Hurtzemeyer, who is a professor in the School of Architecture and Planning at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, and Jethrin Ayumba Akala, who is lecturer in the Department of History and Archaeology at Masino University in Western Kenya. In this part, We will focus on the state responses to the COVID-19 outbreak and the urban logics of action in the informal settlements. In the previous part, we have already covered key issues around land and infrastructure in these areas. So to get us started now, please give us some overview of the COVID situation in Kenya and your experiences with it so far. Jethrin, if you could go ahead and then Marie, please follow up for South Africa. I think for Kenya, uh, the COVID-19 situation, one, it is baffling because I think we tend to understand ourselves better based on where we are, based on past experiences. And COVID-19 is nothing than, is nothing that any one of us has experienced prior to its occurrence in 2019, beginning or starting in Wuhan in China. And everyone, it has caught all of us unprepared. It has caught over all of us seeking, one, seeking to understand the pandemic, but at the same time expected to deal with the pandemic and thrive through the pandemic. So there is a, there is a lot that is happening at the same time. And as such, I think none of us is prepared and we can see what is happening even in the developed world, the, the, the U.S., the strongest economies in the world, they, 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 Germany, Italy, uh, Spain. So the extent of our experiences with, uh, with COVID, I would say it is one of surprise, one of confusion, even from the governments that are supposed to, to be on the forefront as far as uh, ensuring the health of the people is assured and, and people's lives are protected. And the situation in Kenya is not different from the situation as it is anywhere else in the world. And I'll say the government has done its bit in terms of relaying daily, daily updates. One, on the rate of uh, infection, two, the rate, the, 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 those who are recovering and the deaths, and also uh, producing policy statements and policy directives in terms of, 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 of how to handle it. For the institutions that are in charge, I would say there is the challenge of the infrastructures themselves to deal with something of this, of this magnitude. The preparedness, our own social health systems, are they prepared to deal with what we are facing today? And that worries everyone because the idea is not to worry on infection but the greatest fear is what of if what of if our numbers escalate will our health systems be able to deal with the situation as it is and handle it and the those of us in urban areas especially the hotspots because in Kenya 
COVID is highly concentrated within Nairobi as the capital city. And then the city of Mombasa, which is this, uh, I would say, the second largest uh, city and a coastal city for that matter. And the neighboring uh, regional uh, region to Mombasa, which is uh, Kilifi County for that matter. So these are the three uh, areas where COVID infection and COVID, uh, COVID itself is, is concentrated. And they have each adopted different strategies. The president uh, announced uh, what I'll call partial, partial lockdowns and uh, closure of uh, restaurants and many other measures. The regional government in Mombasa has done a great, uh, has done a great job in, uh, as far as response is concerned, because we have response at the national level and also at the regional level. And the governor of Mombasa has done a lot because uh, there is Mombasa, the island, and Mombasa, the mainland, and there is the, the ferry channel, which witnesses over, 100, uh, over 3 million people crossing between the island and the mainland every day. And that was the greatest challenge, how to deal with the high number of people who use the, 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 the Likoni channel on the ferry connecting Mombasa mainland and Mombasa island. And, uh, but there are different measures that have been adopted. People have been asked to observe social distancing, uh, social distancing and uh, staying at home. The government uh, declared a curfew, which means there is prohibition of movement from 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. in the morning. But during the day, business goes on as usual. People have been asked to wear masks. There has been a lot of uh, washing of the hands campaigns, uh, running on the TV, running on radio, different people coming together to do this uh, community sensitization on the need to protect, uh, to protect against the, the, the infection threat. So generally I would say a lot is happening, but we all seem not to be understanding uh, the nature of COVID itself and how best uh, to, 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 to respond. But the cases keep increasing. I think Kenya at the moment stands at uh, around 326 people awaiting maybe the, the daily updates for today. But generally, I would say that is the case. And Jethrin, I understood um, that you are currently in Nairobi um, with your family uh, uh, working from home office since um, March 20th, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, the directives, the, 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 at least the first case for COVID was reported in the country that same week between 15th, uh, I think towards 15th of March. And on 20th, uh, the, the president of Father Day gave out a directive that all institutions, all schools, all institutions to close business by 20th of March. And since 20th of March, I have been in Nairobi with the family. I would say the experience in the rural, because now I have a picture of what? I have the picture of uh, rural settings in, in areas like in Western Kenya. And I have the experience of the city. And COVID is experienced differently. People in the village, generally, they, because of the nature of their livelihoods, they tend, they have tended to move on as if nothing is happening per se, but it is in the city where these measures are necessary. 
and they are full in application. So I work from home. I work from home. I only move out when it's necessary. That is to get supplies from uh, from the supermarket. And in case anyone is sick and requires medical attention, I think those are the only reasons that can warrant anyone to exit the house. Yes. So, so um, South Africa, um, I think, mirrors much of what what Jethro was sharing. Um, I think specifically, if you if you we will go into more of the policy and the and the situation and informal settlements and so on later. But um, the, the the experience right now, I think, is one of of um, this this being baffled and many many questions being asked. People in situations like myself are expected to learn very rapidly. Um, we catapulted into um, sort of having to sift through enormous amounts of information, um, learning quickly, um, inter, you know, learning intersectorally, trying to get our head around just the minimum of epidemiology and um, what, a, what that might mean in informal settlements. Um, there's there's an, an, an incredible amount of connection happening. Um, and and one gets drawn into solidarity networks, but also um, engagement networks and this sort of sense of urgency of of having to influence the situation, having inf- having to influence the the policies. Um, the government is opening up a lot of um, consultative space, um, and and that is incredibly time consuming as well. Um, Sort of as as an academic, we we expected to be teaching online. We expected to carry on um, all the all the normal duties. So it's turning out to be a highly stressful time. Actually, um, we we kind of somehow look at envy, look with envy at those 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 occasional clips of people sitting somewhere on a balcony playing a musical instrument or um, something like that, or or, or um, contemplating a, a wonderful new world. Um, so far, I think we're probably in the in the in the in the midst of it here, in the, in the midst of the sort of uh, the mess really of it here. It's it's week five of complete lockdown, uh, um, which apparently has helped um, the country flatten the curve and basically just win time in terms of preparing the medical facilities that will be needed once the curve will rise, which it will. Um, South Africa, the, the the disease, unfortunately, unlike in Kenya, has spread to every corner of the country. Um, so even in those week, the, the not week, but very short time um, before the complete lockdown, people did move. Um, unfortunately, people didn't heed the call to stay locked down where they are, but they prepared for lockdown by traveling all over the country to their homes. Um, the, the, so, so, and there are real areas. Uh, Etiquini municipality, that's Durban, that's that's hit strongest, um, and and Gauteng, where I'm based, uh, the province in which Johannesburg is based. So the um, the response, well, the, the 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 approach now is that from one May, we move into a new dispensation. We're moving out of complete lockdown into um, a system of different levels. Of lockdown, um, we will be moving to lo- level four. But some some municipalities will actually remain fully locked down. That is level five, 
uh, that's under discussion. Durban, for instance, um, where it's just felt that the the risk at this point is too high to 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 loosen up any of the regulations. Huge, huge worries about livelihoods, about the impact of business, and I'm sure it's the same in Kenya. Um, and we'll talk more about that. I think so. I think I think the the, the experience. Um, is one of anxiety. As colleagues at Wits University, um, a lot of us are are reminded of 2015 when our university erupted with with protest, which was unprecedented. And as staff, we had to pull together um, and we had to kind of encourage one another. We we in that kind of situation again, but this is this is for the long haul. Um, Yes, so so it's it's a different kind of situation. Our students are being wonderful. They are being very very supportive of this. Um, very grateful that they're continuing to have the opportunity to learn and so on. So yes, so and and they have a lot of um, internet problems to navigate, um, space problems to navigate. They don't have the time to concentrate on their own. Often they they um, locked up with families or. And and so on. So so yes. So it it is exposing the inequality in this country, in a in a very um, stark way. And I think that's also something we'll return to in this conversation. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Jethryn and Marie. Um, in the first part of the podcast, you've already offered us a closer look at the everyday and policy issues in informal settlements, and we recommend everyone to have a listen. Um, to find out about the broader context of these settlements. So moving on to thinking about how COVID-19 is changing that, of course, um, the knowledge would be limited as it's ongoing and uh, the ability to actually do research, keep in contact with those places is, of course, also restricted. But could you give us a, a general sense of how things are playing out in terms of uh, state policies, um, you know, restrictions in terms of, you know, social distancing, what kind of um, societal or civic initiatives are emerging? Um, yeah, that kind of thing. With the um, lockdown, which came very quickly in South Africa, the decision came very quickly. Um, one immediately had the sort of worry how that's going to pan out in an informal settlement and the reality being um, although some people have consolidated in brick, by and large, people are living in small tin shacks that when the sun shines, gets very, very hot. When it's cold, they get very, very cold. Um, they, they're really unconducive. It's actually almost unhealthy to spend the whole day. Um, there's very poor ventilation. These were the first things we were being told, um, you know, stay at home, keep your windows open, stay indoors. Um, all of these things were entirely impractical. Um, in informal settlements, um, people have to go out to public toilets. People have to queue for them. People have to use communal taps. Um, hand washing, frequent hand washing for 20 minutes. I mean, uh, 20 seconds, sorry, uh, running a tap that long is completely, un, um, you know, people have to collect um, water in containers, bring it back to their homes. Um, and 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 so, you know, Yes, there's been fantastic uh, innovations. We've seen specifically in, in from, from Nairobi, um, I think you and Habitat was rolling out hand-washing, um, little hand-washing gadgets in Kibera with, with little water tanks underneath them and things like that. We haven't seen that here in South Africa. Um, I think 
I think the the the, the response has been a little bit uh, blunt. Um, of course, what what this immediately showed up is that water supply is inadequate in informal settlements. It's it showed up immediately that um, a lot of what needed to have been done in the past. 25 years hadn't been done. Um, um, water supply um, projects had been um, blocked, had been had run into controversies. You know, corruption levels are quite high in South Africa, particularly around um, infrastructure development contracts and so on. Um, so, what, how the how how um, the the department. The national department that um, is responsible for water sanitation and human settlements um, did is is rake together a lot of money to buy every um, water tank available in the market. Um, and so far, I think they've rolled out two hundred thousand uh, water tanks to um, informal settlements. It was it was just such a classical thing that. Um, Abashlali Basanjondolo's representative was was reporting in one of the engagement meetings that one particular informal settlement had now received its water tank. Um, how should they go about requesting the water tank to be filled with water? Um, you know, uh, so so the coordination that's needed is 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 quite substantial. Um, these things can't be fixed quickly. That's what we're realizing. There is no quick fix. Um, we don't have the innovation. We don't have the means. We don't have the networks, the structures, the, um, the everything that's needed to to quickly fix a situation like this. So um, where yes, the, so the water tank system, uh, so water tank um, rollout has has happened, um, and I think um, the the. There are efforts now to connect them with to fill them with water and to provide, but 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 the budgets for all of that have meant that that money less money is available, or that money had to be reused that was actually allocated to water provision projects, which will now be delayed. Um, so permanent water to settlements will be delayed even further. So there's these trade-offs that had to be made very quickly, um, and and there will be repercussions. Of all of this, that are not necessarily good. Um, the, the you know on 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 the whole, this water tank rollout has has received some applause, but um, you know there are there are bigger costs to the country for for trying to do this. Um, we haven't seen a similar commitment to roll out toilets or to even improve the situation with toilets. Um, some communities are organizing themselves to. Um, do do the the cleansing of these toilets more regularly. Um, there are some some. There's so many. There's so many um, solidarity and charity kind of initiatives. Even collecting money overseas. I know a particular one that is trying to. Um, it's purchasing um, all the all the detergents that are needed and and the protective gear that's needed for one particular community to be able to. To regularly clean its toilets, which are perhaps the the, the hotspots in the settlement where um, transmissions might be happening as people touch those surfaces, um, and and um, there is no there, there's no water tap inside a chemical toilet. You know, you have to get out of the toilet, and then only you can wash your hands somewhere. You still have to get to a tap. Um, these kind of these are the the kind of um, um, real real crunches that are 
that are coming to the fore. But 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 that said, I think the worst um, problem for informal settlements, and it links back to what Jethro was saying about the informal sector, is that lockdown in South Africa has meant a suspension of the of the whole informal sector in terms of livelihoods. Um, so many livelihoods depending on it. Um, and 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 obviously many being in the manufacturing or in, in, in other aspects of the of the um, of clothing trade and so on, but but the food supplies chain also provides a lot of um, livelihoods. Um, that that having been suspended, the biggest the biggest concern is hunger. Um, there's a survey that's just been carried out that kind of indicated that a quarter of South African population does not even have enough money for food. Um, these uh, up to 50% of people in informal settlements um, are going hungry. Um, and 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 this this then shows up again um, levels of local solidarity. So in settlements that are well organized, for instance, Abashlali has been sharing how they've managed, they have international donor connections, they have um, um, some campaigns people are donating that that allow them to do far, food parcel distribution themselves and communities receiving them um, collectivize those resources and and cook communally of course against lockdown provisions but they have to do this um, they, they they're sharing um, we we have a few informal settlements that are not linked into any social movements that are highly fragile um, spaces where we're seeing food rights and NGOs are no, no longer able to go to these settlements because they get attacked um, uh, by, by by hungry mobs essentially. And this is and these settlements um, are not represented in the in the um, in the engagements because they're not they're not part of these networks. They um, and so on. So so these are these are the really really um, sad sides of a, of a country that has a strong economy, um, that has an enormous solidarity fund. So with announcement of lockdown, also, I think it was at the time when we went to the second phase of lockdown, um, extended lockdown, that the ministers were all told that their salaries were cut by a third. Um, the the same, same applied to government officials. Everybody's encouraged to donate a third of their salary. To a huge solidarity fund, of course, that gets used a lot for um, essential medical care and equipment. But a lot of it was supposed to go towards food parcels, and the the evidence we have from the ground is that it's very very hard to get through to the call centres to get. So the coordination isn't there. It's 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 really a mess in terms of in terms of trying to get the food to where it's needed most. And and shockingly, there's been reports of corruption in the food in this food parceling supply system as well and and so um there are real emergency and pressure points um that the country is facing and so right now um there there's there's been um at the deadline was midnight last night um calls for input into the regulations for the next phase which will be the leveled the levels, the different levels of of, of lockdown, um, which economy, which economic activities should be allowed, and and so on. So at least that um, the, the, there's space for input there. 
Um, but the trade-offs are enormous. The kind of assumption that for, for health purposes, we need very strict lockdown um, regulations to continue at the same time, the stress levels in society because of our enormous inequalities are um, are coming to to sort of a point that the country can't afford really to to sustain, um, and 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 something has to give. I think the other the other big concern during lockdown in informal settlements has been um, messaging from from the state um, that has been quite blunt. And that's related to the fact that informal settlements in some cases are quite dense. And this assumption that social distancing won't be possible and that therefore we need to de-densify informal settlements. This um, is a message that is even again in the media yesterday um, as, 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 a, as a sector, as academics, NGOs, um, even yeah, consultants in the sector have all advised against this. Um, have advised that it's and 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 drawing also on on UN guidelines um, have advised the government that it's the wrong time to even think about relocations. That these will never be voluntarily. Um, they, they the requirement is engagement, but as we know, um, relocations are often done quite forcefully. Um, so, so there's this 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 sort of um, a cloud hanging over over um, informal settlements, and that is has to do with this messaging that there's a there's a deterministic plan to de-densify the worst informal settlements. Twenty nine of them have been identified, and that they will be moved into temporary relocation areas where they will have better conditions and they can self isolate. And the messaging shifts um, from day to day. Um, but in our engagement with the um, with high level officials in the, minister, in the in the National Department of Human Settlements, and these engagements are quite phenomenal. There's a once a week um, a Zoom meeting which now over seventy people um, participate in. Well, yesterday it was a public holiday, and over thirty people participated um, from NGOs, social movements, academics, and government officials um, engaging. Really, the, the the officials that that are right at the at the top of the department having to make uh, decisions or or or, or have to um, liaise with the decision making centres, um, and we're getting a sense that they are really um, that there's real progress being made and and better understanding of the need for a far more nuanced approach, an approach that is that is fully compliant with our in situ upgrading program. And legislation, our anti-eviction legislation, with the prohibition of evictions that is in the lockdown regulations, um, and and we've really had quite a constructive conversation there. It's been very highly contested, but it's moved into a be, being a more constructive um, conversation. And yet, we're getting messages in the media that 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 there's very little shift um, and on this political idea of de-densifying informal settlements. So that that is that is a a bit of a um it's it's a very strange situation we have you know on the one hand this unprecedented engagement willingness to listen um, um a whatsapp group with with government officials and also some, some something like 70 people in the sector um you know discussing things like evictions really making 
strong arguments. We have our, our housing rights lawyers on that network as well. Um, and, and those arguments being taken up um, in, in, the, in the discussions with officials. But, but at the same time, somehow a political message goes out, which we don't know whether the media is perhaps um, um, shifting slightly or whether it comes like that from the minister's spokesperson or whatever. But, but, but that, that battle, I think, has not yet been won about needing to shift the policy away from plans of, of, of relocating people um, out of informal settlements during, during this time. Um, the, what is instead needed is really to capacitate uh, communities on the ground to organize themselves around suitable responses um, and, and to de themselves determine what kind of interventions are needed. Um, um, in all cases, you know, more, more standpipes can be wrought in. It's interesting that South Africa does not have um, the uh, entrepreneurialization of water and, and sanitation supplies. So we don't have pay toilets and we don't have water cellars. And there still is this expectation that those are um, democratic rights, constitutional rights, and the, the government does have the obligation to provide. Um, and the, but the standards are relatively low, and 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 but the push is for that to be improved. Um, yes, so I think I'll. I think I've, I've spoken quite long. It'll be interesting to hear what what she throws, um, what the counterpoint there is in in Kenya. Yeah, you have spoken not quite long, but quite well. And I think mine will just be to to add on or emphasize or amplify what you have already stated. I think the approaches are the same. The lockdown that was declared, what I would call a partial lockdown or restricted movement that was declared in Nairobi, it works well in areas that are planned. It works well in areas where people have most of the services they require or they can provide themselves with most of the services they require in-house. I'm talking of uh, maybe upper middle class and and and, uh, and high end residential areas where we have uh, water closets. Uh, closets there is in-house supply of water. We have uh, you have a refrigerator based on the economic status. You can store you can store food to take you for for for, for three weeks. Yes, and take you safely through maybe these uh, extended periods of, of, of lockdowns and so on. But the informal areas based on the infrastructural uh, system out outlay, especially the key infrastructures, uh, taking the example of water and uh, sanitation, the, the, the toilets, which are unavoidable in the everyday life of any human being. With these standpipes that are not located at the door. There are some are located a few miles away, some are located a few meters away. One has to walk to the water, to the standpipe. One has to queue to access water. And remember there is the requirement that people stand uh, 1.5 meters away from each other. And there is this slum, these informal settlements are so congested that the little space that exists is one that is used to place that standpipe and is also a narrow pathway. So when there is a requirement of one, 1.5 meters apart, it becomes almost impossible 
to implement such a directive as far as restricting or, or, or adopting social distancing is concerned. The number of households or uh, the number of uh, people in a household, this we are talking of single, single room, less than six square feet in terms of the space that is being utilized. And this is the only space being utilized by all family members. You cook, you store your utensils, your other household equipment, and you have an area where you sit and have your meal, and you have where you sleep. A very restricted space. And taking an average family size of uh, five members, that's the father, mother, and maybe perhaps three children. So it becomes very, very difficult to implement social distancing, to implement lockdowns because of the precarious nature of life in informal areas. So these policies have been declared and they have to be adhered. Every citizen has a civic responsibility to adhere to them. But in terms of the execution, they are almost impossible in areas that 60% of the city inhabits informal areas because of the precarious nature of, of, of urban life for the urban poor. There is the lighting dilemma that you are supposed to stay indoors and you're supposed to light yourself because these are congested areas so the lighting is poor. And maybe you, you have to use candles during the day. Maybe those same, same candles are a huge risk in terms of uh, the probability of fires that can be devastating. There is the use of paraffin stoves. Paraffin stoves that sometimes uh, give out uh, toxic uh, fumes. There is the use of the charcoal stove as a, as, as, as a, as a major supply of uh, fuel in informal areas. And the nature of this charcoal stove is that you have to light it outside the house. You must find a space outside the house where you will light it. Once it has burnt and uh, you have it is the, 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 the charcoal is brick red, meaning there is a minimized uh, carbon monoxide, that's when you take it into the house. Now you continue with your cooking. But there is curfew. From 7 p.m., you are not supposed to be out of the house. You're supposed to be inside your house. And the police are brutalizing those who are outside. So that is the dilemma in informal areas in terms of sustain, sustainability of these policies and even the sustain, sustainability of the lives themselves. Let's look at the nature of uh, earning. How do people who inhabit informal areas earn their day-to-day -day livelihoods? They depend on casual employment, if not in industrial areas, most of them, uh, most of the industries are closed down. If not in the houses of the rich, their neighborhoods, they walk into these rich neighborhoods across the valleys to work in the house, to wash clothes, to clean the houses, and maybe they earn maybe perhaps maybe 200 Kenya shillings. And when they come back in the evening, that's when they can plan their lives. So there is the temporality of life in the informal areas that cannot allow for effective implementation of these uh, COVID-19 uh, response mechanisms that have been adopted and mass by the government. It makes it very, very difficult. So these people must survive and they have to choose between 
in, uh, being infected by COVID and starving to death. And we all know the obvious answer here. They will choose to step out in order to survive than to starve to their death. So in terms of conceptualization of the threats posed by COVID-19, I think the poor in our informal areas do not choose between their own life and COVID-19. And since they also the myth of COVID-19 itself, it is unfortunate that uh, the government every day gives updates. And I had, as I had indicated, I think the current statistics for Kenya stand at 363, right? so, uh, 363 infections. But there is also a myth, and these myths spread more in informal areas than in what I would call in areas where people have access to internet so they can do research and, uh, about the disease for themselves. And the myth is that the disease might not be in Kenya, but because the government wants to benefit from the WHO uh, fund towards COVID-19 combating, the government has developed a narrative of COVID infection so that they can access that money that is being offered by WHO. So if people have such, if you have such myths spreading among the people, then they would risk and step out. But as I, as, as generally, it's not easy for implementation. The government has given directives to enhance sanitization, the use of hand sanitizers, washing frequently, and the use of masks. Sanitization requires water. And we all know how expensive water in informal areas is. So there is a choice to regularly wash your hands and the choice to save on the little water that you have because of the precarious nature of your own life, because you're not sure if you'll survive beyond tomorrow, if you'll have the 10 shillings, Kenya shillings, or the five Kenya shillings required to purchase a 20 liter jelly can of water. So there is the saving aspect of urban, uh, in, uh, urban life in informal areas where you have to minimize on the usage of everything that you have in anticipation of tomorrow. So this in itself becomes almost a challenging uh, mechanism to adopt and implement. Masks, the cheapest is going at around 160 Kenya shillings. And therefore, it just tells you clearly that the majority of the urban poor in these slums cannot afford even a disposable face mask. So either they are accessing one supplied by the politician or NGOs or neighborhood uh, movements. And that one that they access is reused severally and yet it's supposed to be disposable, hence putting them even at a, at a much greater risk. The other challenge in Kenya, and I believe South Africa is the same and across Africa and even most of the global South uh, countries, is that there is the politicization of development, there is the politicization of emergency responses, and this politicization is one of the biggest challenges because COVID-19 has, uh, has also provided an opportunity for politicians to play their usual game. Sometimes I ask if politicians 
are born amongst us or they come from an alien place somewhere else. But there is this risk of politicization of COVID-19 responses and, and emergency responses as it happens always. So politicians are reaping big in that it is now their time to organize food supplies, to organize uh, supply of masks, face masks, and uh, face masks and, 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 and hand sanitizers. So what they are doing is they are branding these uh, food packages, they are branding these uh, sanitizing, uh, hand sanitizer containers, branding them with their own images and using it for political mileage. In Kibera, one week ago, there was almost there was a stampede as one politician had organized to distribute uh, food packages and because of lack of infrastructures for the same there was a stampede uh, unconfirmed information claimed that two women lost their lives the government came out and denied that but it was clear because it was captured on on, on camera that there was a near stampede, and, and I don't think even the, the distribution of that food went on effectively. So these are the risks involved, because the government is putting in place different measures. The president of Kenya announced certain measures. There is the creation of 2 billion Kenya shillings for what he calls the vulnerable from anti... Uh, this money has been uh, gotten from the anti-corruption earnings, the money that the government is, is recovering from corrupt deals. So from this anti-corruption earnings kitty, the government has allocated funds for the vulnerable within society. There is 10 billion Kenya shillings for transfers to the elderly, and uh, the elderly, especially in, in formal areas. But the challenge is, yes, there is allocation of 10 billion Kenya shillings and 2 billion Kenya shillings, but without the requisite infrastructure, social and political infrastructure systems to, end, to handle the distribution. Because we are talking of informal areas that are highly congested. How do you move in to safely deliver the, hand, the, 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 the food packages? How do you move in to institute a system of distribution of small monies for survival amongst the vulnerable within society? Because you will need statistics. I don't know if the government has this, uh, those statistics of those they are calling the vulnerable. And if vulnerability is the measure, isn't everyone in informal areas vulnerable? That is the question. Where do you draw the line between the able in informal areas? We know there are people who are rich and who live in informal areas. Those, the, 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 the gang leaders, the cartel leaders, and, and those who control this illegal selling of water, illegal selling of electricity. These are very rich people. But where do you draw the line between the one who is vulnerable and the one who is not vulnerable to determine who receives this money? Of course, there is a money, a money transfer uh, infrastructure system, a mobile money transfer infrastructure system in Kenya called M-Pesa. So through the M-Pesa, you would say the chances of everyone receiving are almost 100%. Because at least almost everyone has a mobile phone and a registered SIM card which means they can receive money and do transactions. So there is a challenge of infrastructures that can enhance the application of these, uh, the application of these measures and also the implementation and execution, effective execution of the policy approaches that have been, that have been adopted. And social distances is a foreign phenomenon in informal areas. It is there on paper by the government, but it is non-existent.
there is the police brutality in terms of uh, in terms of uh, effecting especially the restricted movement policy and the approach in itself is jeopardizing the life of the people a very good example is when the president declared a curfew on the first day that it was implemented a boy of around 12 years was shot dead by the police on on the third floor of their apartment this boy was not on the streets and it was it was past 7 pm yes but the boy the child was not on the street the child was just playing on the balcony of the third floor in one of the uh, informal areas uh, uh, madare and as such this is the risk that the people in informal areas find themselves exposed to in the face of covid-19 but on a positive note the uh, the kenya population council has is conducting regular uh, surveys and regular studies in informal areas the idea is to control the spread of coronavirus and through the ministry of health covid-19 task, task force which was uh, formed immediately the first case was uh, reported they have implemented initial prevention and mitigation measures and of concern at the dense densely overcrowded the poor urban uh, informal areas where sanitation and social distancing measures are near impossible so covid-19 would spread rapidly and be devastated in such conditions and therefore what this uh, task force has done is to do uh, regular surveys within the informal areas targeting close to 2000 heads of households sampled from existing prospective cohort studies across the five nairobi uh, across five nairobi urban slums the iterations of the surveys are conducted one to two weeks the baseline findings on the awareness of covid-19 symptoms perceived risk awareness of the ability to carry out preventive behaviors misconceptions like i mentioned and the fears they are all to be allayed by the tax force where feedback there is a feedback mechanism that uh, will is put in place to really determine the rate and the risks involved and also to deal with the misconceptions that surround all this so i think i think for me this is a positive approach where there are regular uh, regular surveys and regular studies in informal areas deliberately conducted by the population council of kenya together with the ministry of health through the covid-19 task force that was put in place immediately the first cases the first cases were reported thank you well um Marie and Jethren uh thank you so much for these yeah uh, rich uh, accounts as the last question or I, i would like to give you the opportunity just say the the key lesson that you've learned from the situation so far or the key uh, conclusion that you have drawn out of this experience uh, as a scholar and public intellectual I'll say that the key lesson learned from these experiences is that there is a need to promote uh, awareness in how the city is composed. I think governments need to be alive to the the, the realities of the, the cities, their own cities. We have had uh, outbreaks of cholera and these have not provided enough learning lessons and my hope is that covid-19 provides us that golden opportunity to revise our approach mechanisms to health issues especially in urban areas 
and general protection of human lives and towards building resilient cities and sustainable cities for that matter. It also provides an opportunity for governments to revisit their planning models and put more resources to uh, building infrastructures that will build the resilience that these cities require and also provide the sustainability that is required. And then another lesson would be the need to promote uh, communal aspects and solidarity, urban solidarity, in terms of uh, the relationship between government and, uh, and, and governmental organization to promote these partnerships. It is very encouraging to see that Kenyans have been able to join forces and raise funds amongst themselves and buy food and, and, and package these foods and deliver to identified households within informal areas just in promoting that spirit of humanity. So that is a great, great plus on all of us. And if that is used as a resource, that solidarity and that humanity in itself is the only sure way to prepare, combat, and even bounce, bounce forward from this pandemic. I don't believe in bounce backs because the reality and the truth is our countries, our cities will never be the same after COVID-19. And pursuing a bounce back is futile in itself. We need to prepare for a bounce forward with, with much more enlightenment and with much more understanding of ourselves and the future that we envision for our own cities. And then lastly, just as a thought, I'm just eager to walk into post-COVID, that is if um, I, I survive it, and see what will happen to the handshake. And I'm speaking from a very strongly cultural and social Kenyan element, and mostly across Africa, what the handshake means. Because avoiding a handshake has been one of the, the one of the issues that have been put in place and one of the, the, the one of the mechanisms that have been emphasized day in and out. Avoid a handshake, avoid contact. And for societies where the handshake means more than a greeting, I really want to see that future. And but that is just on a light note. Thank you. So, so I, I agree 100% with everything that Jethro was, was saying that was so well said. Um, what, what I'll share is just um, a little bit about, um, as an academic, what this means. And for me, it has, it has highlighted how, as academics, we have allowed uh, um, untenable workloads to erode the space that we need to make a meaningful contribution contribution in a situation like this. Um, I think like in many areas of, of, the, of the globe, um, universities are quite corporatized, um, submitting us to, to performance um, management systems and so on, which do not value um, this, the kind of role we are so much needing to play in a condition like this. Um, so South Africa would not have come up with this shift now um, with the next dispensation to move into a system of, of, of um, grants um, and, and including vouchers to the most vulnerable households, um, which was a result of, of really intense lobbying and, and, 
academics in that field, in, in the field of economics and so on, played a, an enormous role in that. And I think, I think as academics, we have to be those lobbyists. We have to be in touch with, with grassroots movements. We have to understand um, the politics. We have to read the politics around here. We have to understand when it's appropriate to engage, when it's appropriate to confront. Um, we have to understand the implications of those strategies politically. Um, and we have to understand how, um, what solidarities mean um, when communities' politics are primarily around redress and, and at this point about survival. Um, where, do we, where do we put our own politics in relation to that? So I think those are really um, challenges for us as academics in this particular moment. We've, we've become quite complacent. Um, we've let life and politics and policies uh, move along because we've simply been too busy to engage with them. And now's the time really to push back. Luckily, everything's handled quite flexibly. Suddenly, you can tell to the, tell the journal that those reviews could only be done in three months' time or whatever. Um, nobody's expecting anything to happen immediately. Um, and I think I think it is a time to to win back also the the political um, agency um, in academia and and to con to to really strengthen the discussion among ourselves on that front as well. Thank you so much, Marie and uh, Jethrin, for for sharing your your ideas and your insights. Um, we greatly appreciate. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.